You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, my name is Babak Abbasadeh. I'm the President and CEO of the Toronto Centre for Global Leadership in Financial Supervision. At Toronto Centre, we are committed to expanding women's access to financial services as a way to improve their economic empowerment through employment and entrepreneurship. We were established in 1998 to promote sound financial governance, financial stability and financial inclusion by building the capacity of financial sector regulators and supervisors, primarily in emerging markets and developing countries. Women's ability to save, borrow, and control their own money and insure themselves and their assets is critical for poverty reduction and sustainable economic growth. Innovations such as digital finance help increase access to poor and rural women. We believe that by putting in place sound regulatory and supervisory systems that ensure consumer protection and look at sustainable economic growth can reduce the gap that women face in using financial services. Toronto Centre is very pleased with Canada's new feminist international assistance policy that puts women and girls front and centre and promotes their equality and fair treatment in order to promote sustainable development, reduce poverty, and help achieve the goals of the UN 2030 Sustainable Development. We support Canada's vision, as articulated by Minister Bibol, that international sustainable economic development and poverty reduction really is not possible without empowering and valuing women and girls. Closing the gender gap in finance is not just a preoccupation of the developing world. In advanced nations such as Canada, Sweden, and elsewhere, these are important issues that policymakers and others are grappling with, whether it be in the corporate boardrooms, uh, workplaces, or everyday life. In this program, I will be interviewing strong women leaders in financial governance who have a valuable perspective on gender. Thank you. Maureen has had a distinguished career in addition to her leadership role at the OSC as a Senior VP for Surveillance and Compliance at the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada, or IROC. She also held senior positions at the Toronto Stock Exchange and a 20-year career in the mining and resource company. Maureen, it's a great honor to have you with us today. We know you have a strong commitment in this area. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell me why is this issue important to you? Well, uh, it's important uh, to me for two reasons. First of all, uh, I'm a regulator. Second of all, I'm a woman who's been in business for almost 40 years. So uh, if I talk about it as a regulator, the, the first thing I want to say is governance of companies in the financial sector is of utmost importance. 
and to have good governance. I mean, governance is about rules and procedures and policies in companies that manage the interaction between shareholders and management and all the other stakeholders. So we looked at all of the various companies, issuers and registrants, and we started to see um, issues in the governance sector. And one of the biggest issues we were seeing is groupthink. So when you start thinking about groupthink, you have to think about diversity. And so diversity at the board table, diversity of thought, of background, of leadership styles, um, of, uh, of all kinds of experience is very important. And so I had to say as a regulator, it was really important to have a diverse board. Once you have a diverse board, you start having different kinds of conversations. Second of all, as a woman in business, what I was seeing is a lot of young women starting out in these businesses, getting to middle management, and not really having a way to move forward. And I think part of the issue is it's at board level, at senior management level, collegiality plays a very important role. And what we're seeing also is that leadership styles, one kind of leadership style is generally preferred over others because it's comfortable. And so it's very important, I think, in encouraging diversity at all those levels, not just at the board level, but at the senior management level, that you start thinking about different types of people. To me, that is diversity, and that's why I'm pushing this. Is setting targets important? And if so, does the OHC itself have gender diversity targets to ensure that more women have the opportunity to reach top leadership positions here? Actually, we haven't set formal targets, but we have set informal targets. So I just want to say that uh, our, our rule didn't set targets, but what we felt was that the, uh, we wanted to have a, a, an equal or fairly equal representation. And so uh, we decided at the board level and also at the senior management level that that's what we would shoot for. In our executive management team, we have 45% women. In, uh, at the board level, it's 47%. In our uh, executive team that actually leads the, the business, um, we have the CEO is a woman, the uh, chief administrative officer is a woman, and one out of the two vice chairs is a woman. And what we see is a totally different kind of conversation at both of these tables. And I'm very proud of what we've achieved. And uh, it also encourages others in the organization because what they see is they see themselves at the executive team table. And can you tell us about the OSC's uh, disclosure requirements? I also understand that's called comply or explain model. Mm -hmm. And how they help promote gender diversity. So as I said, we, we were worried about this groupthink uh, discussion and we uh, were trying to encourage more diverse conversations at the governance tables. We started off in the summer of 2013, so in June of 2013, had a conversation with the government. We managed to put a, uh, a draft rule in place uh, by uh, January of 2014 uh, out for comment. And it was finally in place at the end of 2014. So that was quite rapid, considering that we had to do this across Canada. One of the things that we wanted to do, this, this comply or explain rule, it's actually a disclosure rule, and it's part of our governance rules. And what it said was, at every end of year reporting for all uh, Canadian listed companies on the TSX, uh, TSX, so the senior board, they would uh, report on the number of women on their board, the number of women in their executive management team, 
whether or not they had policies and procedures in place to encourage women at both of those levels, and also whether they had targets. Now in the third year of that reporting, started out we were 11% women on boards. Each year since then we've gone up one percentage point. Only one. Wow. So think about that. In a country where graduates at business school are 50-50, law school 50-50, accounting, and yet at the board table, the progress is very slow. And part of this is culture, is just many boards, they appoint through their own networks. And so what we're trying to do is challenge those networks and say you need to, to look at the, the women who are qualified and think about bringing them on your board. And, it, and this is not an issue of not having the qualified women out there. They have uh, director-ready women registers in Canada where there's approximately 2,000 women of all different backgrounds that are board trained and board ready. So this is an issue about reaching out and trying for a different form of leadership. So in your view, and I know you belong to some international organizations, what are other countries doing in this, uh, on this issue? And how does Canada compare internationally? It, internationally, this is the, kind of the way it shakes out. So that uh, you, can have, you can mandate uh, to have more diversity on the board, or you can set targets for more diversity, or you can just go with a disclosure. And so what we're seeing in Europe, they set quotas. And so they said that there's going to be 30% women on the board. By setting a quota, they said, and if you don't reach that quota, you will be delisted. That's what they did in Norway. And so everyone met the quota, or the vast majority of people met the quota. The down, which was great, and they started to have uh, different conversations. However, um, it had to happen so rapidly that many, many women were overboarded on, on many boards or ha had some original involvement with the to company fill the quota, right. to fill in the quota. The other downside of the quota was that whatever the quota set, that's what they did. They didn't go beyond it. It didn't translate into more female chairs. It was just board members. And it also didn't translate into any changes within the management of the corporation. And so the feeder was not put in place. Others set targets and said that these are, these are voluntary targets, but these are targets you're going to be measured against. And the UK is one of them, and so is Australia. And so they started reporting towards those targets, and we've seen a big change in that. There's also a lot of uh, the companies who set these not our voluntary targets, uh, the, the, the countries that did that, they ended up with a lot of success when they had very influential business leaders stand behind these targets and walk the talk. And so that really helped. And then many other jurisdictions went with disclosure, which is what we have done. But in Canada, what we're doing is we're saying that we're going to do this disclosure-based regime for the first three years. We're going to measure our progress, and then we're going to decide what we need to do going forward. So many countries are on this journey. The countries that are on the journey are there for a very specific reason. They want to have better performance. There is more and more research out there now that is showing that if you have more diverse conversations on the board and you have more women on your boards, that you actually have better performance. There's been a study just released by CIBC that showed one or more women on your board and it compared to like companies in the same sector ended up with earnings 
in performance 300 basis points higher. That's substantial. That's the difference between a well-performing and a poorly performing investment. That's an impressive number. That's an impressive number. We also saw that the, there was the Peterson Institute study. There was a 15% better performance on revenue So with, with women on the board. And so what we're seeing are more and more studies that are showing that, but even absent the studies, the idea of having an economy where 50% of the population is ignored, just ignored and not utilized as the part of the brain pool just makes no sense because we're in a global business now. Everyone's in a global business. You need to find the best and the brightest, and that means you need to just cast your net as wide as possible. So in a sense, with diversity comes greater awareness of different kinds of risk, different ways of looking at strategy, yes. different ways of measuring, so it's all these benefits coming. That's right, asking questions differently, different probing styles, and what happens is you end up having a much better appreciation of risks and opportunities. And the progress that the OSC has made in this area serve as a positive example to other jurisdictions. I think we've charted our way that works for the Canadian uh, landscape, but I think the issue is that no matter how open or conservative your culture is, it's important to really look at diversity at the board table as an important aspect of good financial performance and growing the economy. And so I would say that whether you're looking at mandated targets or you're, you're looking at uh, voluntary targets or disclosure-based regimes, it's important to get on this, um, this track and start looking at trying to better the boards in all of our countries because good corporate governance means good conversations and all of that leads to better performance and we all need that. What else can be done to increase the capacity of these regulators and supervisors to become more not only just sensitive, more savvy in this area of gender equality and closing the gender gap? When we're looking at governance as regulators, which is a core part of our business, we have to start thinking about looking at the, con uh, the constituency of the boards that we're seeing and looking at the kind of uh, decision-making that they're undertaking and call out groupthink. I think it's important. I think uh, governance is such a fundamental piece of the public regime, of the public company um, performance, that we have to make sure that when we're seeing things that aren't good governance, that we actually comment about it. Maureen, thank you very much. These were very helpful and thoughtful comments, and I'm sure our audience will appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank for you time. very much. It is my pleasure to be here in Washington, D.C. at the World Bank interviewing and introducing Jayla Pazar Bashoglu. Jayla is the Senior Director of Finance and Markets Global Practice at the World Bank, responsible for financial stability, financial inclusion, and contributing to sustainable development. Before the World Bank, she was at the IMF, responsible for regulation, supervision, and crisis prevention, as well as many FSAP initiatives as part of the Monitoring Capital Markets Department of the IMF. From your perspective, what is the situation today globally with regard to um, gender gap in finance? So, 
Thank you, Babak. It's a pleasure to have you here as well. Let's unpack this a little bit. When I think about finance, uh, gap in finance, there are three issues that come to my mind. First is uh, participation of women in financial institutions, either as managers or staff or as uh, on boards. Here, women don't do so well. Less than 10% of all U.S. fund managers are uh, women, and only a handful of women are CEOs at, uh, of major banks. But we actually do better when it comes to cleaning up, which is uh, interesting in this context, but there are many examples of female supervisors who then clean up the banking system, like we saw recently in the case of Ukraine, or the single supervisory mechanism in Europe, and in my country, in Turkey. And the third issue that comes to mind is actually the participation of women in the financial uh, services in terms of access to financial services. And that's the issue which I would like to concentrate on given the inspiring mandate of the World Bank to uh, eradicate extreme poverty and uh, promote shared prosperity. Here, if you look at the figures, it's not very inspiring. We are working on it, so there is hope, optimism. But right now, about 42% of women worldwide, it's about 1.1 billion women, they remain outside of the formal uh, financial system. And according to World Bank's Global Findex survey, the gender gap is highest in uh, the world's poorest countries. On average, the gap is more than uh, nine percentage points. In some nations, it's actually dramatically higher than that, going up to 25, 26%. By contrast, in high-income OECD economies, there is no difference between uh, men or uh, women's uh, access to financial services. So there is a, a big gap in many of the poor countries that we have to do a lot of work on. I also interviewed Maureen Jensen, chair of the Ontario Security mm -hmm. Commission, and they're grappling with this issue as well. So Ontario is an advanced jurisdiction, as you know, and it has an economy that is as large or larger than Sweden and Denmark, and yet uh, uh, trying to close the gender gap is an important issue in the context of advanced nations as well. So this is a universal issue. Why is closing the gender gap in finance so important? So there are, um, again, we can look at it from the three perspectives. Mm -hmm. I uh, remember very well when Christine Lagarde, the head of the, the IMF, asked the question, what, what would the world look like if it was Lehman Sisters rather than Lehman Brothers? And actually, colleagues of mine at the IMF did some work to see if there is any difference in terms of risk aversion of women or um, uh, different behaviors by women. There's not that much concrete, robust evidence. I do think it's very important to have at the board level, at the supervisory level, financial institution level, diversity of opinions and perspectives. In terms of access to finance, I think it's really critical to have inclusion more broadly. 50% of population roughly is women, are women. So it should be that they do have access to financial services like everyone else does. And we have seen this recently with the backlash against globalization and so on. So we do need inclusive growth. We, need, we do need uh, inclusive finance so that uh, women have the same access to financial services as men as they are critical in terms of creating jobs, creating education opportunities for their children, health-related uh, issues, and so on. So I do think it's uh, very critical 
for us to be able to have shared prosperity and inclusive sustainable growth, more diverse perspectives are always good. So having um, female voices around the table and male voices around the table undoubtedly leads to better and more efficient outcomes. So I think from that perspective, it's important to close the gender gap in terms of women participation in uh, financial institutions and regulation of financial institutions. In terms of access to financial services, I think this is really critical because we have seen recently all the backlash against globalization and trade flows and so on and so forth. And we will not have a resilient and sustainable banking system unless we make sure that they have the access uh, to financial services. And that doesn't mean account use only. It means savings accounts. It means insurance. It means access to responsible credit, not just access to credit, but responsible credit. But this is the only way that women can also contribute in terms of jobs, employment, entrepreneurship, uh, education of their children, health, and so on. So I do think it's very critical, and for us at the World Bank, this is a, a key goal to ensure that we have finance for all, not just few. Canada has just recently introduced its uh, uh, feminist international assistance mm -hmm. policy. I don't expect that you would have read it, but at least from the title, you can see the emphasis there. So in practical terms, let's just focus on one group, regulators and supervisors. Mm -hmm. What can they do to improve the situation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as, as a former regulator, what comes to mind is, you know, why should a regulator care? Because the mandate of a regulator or supervisor of a financial sector is basically to make sure that the financial system is sound and resilient. Financial inclusion is not necessarily the mandate of uh, most regulators. But as I just said, we learned the hard way that we need to be inclusive. For growth to be inclusive, finance has to be inclusive. And that requires access by all to financial services. So that's why I do think that inevitably it has implications for stability and resilience and therefore uh, regulators, supervisors should care. What can they do practically? First, um, they can help remove regulatory and legal obstacles to women's uh, financial inclusion. This has uh, this is not just regulators, but broadly authorities, for example, in terms of property ownership by women, uh, in terms of access to formal credit, in terms of engagement in economic activity. There are usually barriers to women in terms of uh, legal or not having access to ID, not having access to collateral. So that first one is identifying and, and mitigating the legal and regulatory uh, obstacles. Second, related to that, they can improve the financial infrastructure to reduce gender disparities. This could be, uh, for example, movable collateral registries, which makes it easier for women to have access to credit. It could be credit bureau data and big data and other information which helps them develop a credit history and therefore uh, demonstrate their repayment capacity and allow them access to different types of financial services. Third, uh, regulators and supervisors can work together um, with the private sector to enable access to digital financial mm -hmm. services in a responsible way. You know, the, of course, opportunities and risks are there, but in a re this digital 
finance brings a lot of opportunities in terms of easier access. Women usually have uh, time limitations because they are multitasking, taking care of the family, uh, education of children, and if they're also working. So therefore, allowing them to receive and transfer money safely, which is a key concern in some jurisdictions, and conveniently from their own communities, businesses, and homes will go a long way in allowing access to women. We've seen this in, in Bangladesh, we've seen this in Kenya, mobile money services have increased access of women to financial services. Fourth and finally, in order to design good policies and strategies, we need to understand and diagnose what the problems are, and therefore we need to have much more information on gender gap, and especially in terms of types of services, financial services, that this is uh, an issue. So we need to strengthen our knowledge base and, and database information base in order to have better policies. I think what you just said is a fantastic way for us to do an action plan on gender. And tying some of the various strands of what we talked about, you talked about more than a billion women not having access to banking services. And everything that you just talked about is about empowering women to be able to have the ability to save borrow, control their own money, insure themselves and their assets against loss, which ultimately contribute to poverty reduction and sustainable development. So thanks for that. What else has the World Bank been working on with its members' countries that you think can help improve the situation? Mm -hmm. So for the World Bank, this is a key corporate goal. We have this Universal Financial Access 2020 where we have a pledge to have uh, 2 billion unbanked uh, people to have access to transaction accounts. We have been working very closely with IBRD and IFC, jointly working with the private sector to achieve this very important goal. Access to an account doesn't mean financial inclusion. It's a, it's a gateway, it's a start, because that will then allow, hopefully, access to services like we discussed in terms of savings, hopefully responsible credit, insurance, and, and so on. So we are very strongly committed, and UFA 2020 is a, is a key goal for us, including uh, aspects of broader access to financial services. We have also been working hard with countries in terms of building collateral registries, uh, movable collateral registries, credit bureaus, and uh, development of international standards to allow for um, mitigating some of the impediments that uh, have been in the way in terms of access of uh, women to financial services. We are also working with Data to Act, 2X. This is an initiative of the United Nations Foundation, uh, and this will be really important in focusing the information base on, in terms of gender in country-level financial data. And finally, we are collecting the third wave of data for the Global Pindex, which provides sex-disaggregated uh, demand-side data on financial inclusion, and we hope to finalize it by the end of the year. So these are the key efforts that the bank has been working on in terms of financial inclusion uh, generally, but also in financial inclusion of, of women specifically. Sounds like you're very busy. It is a busy agenda. In closing, I wanted to uh, thank you and also uh, acknowledge that you're not a stranger to the financial sector supervisors and regulators. You're known around the world, and we feel very privileged to have you on our board. And uh, most of our viewers may not know, but the World Bank was a founder of the Toronto Center, so we're very appreciative of World Bank's continuing support and your role in that. Thank you.